power that ever was or will be is here now. I am a center of expression for the primal will to good, which eternally creates and sustains the universe. Through me, its unfailing wisdom takes form in thought and word. Filled with understanding of its perfect law, I am guided moment by moment along the path of liberation. From the exhaustless riches of its limitless substance, I draw all things needful, both spiritual and material. I recognize the manifestation of the undeviating justice in all the circumstances of my life. In all things, great and small, I see the beauty of the divine expression. Living from that will, supported by its unfailing wisdom and understanding, mine is the victorious life. I look forward with confidence to the perfect realization of the eternal splendor of the limitless light. In thought and word and deed, I rest my life from day to day upon the sure foundation of eternal being. The kingdom of spirit is embodied in my flesh. Let's see, I think in, uh, in church, the announcements come next. Uh, the announcements are that those of you who are so moved and want to continue uh, on the path of the tarot would probably be pleased to know what the textbook is. If you don't already know, it's the book called The Tarot by Paul Case. And uh, it's highly recommended by the management that you investigate the small outline called The Highlights of the Tarot, also by Paul Case. And uh, if, if you are in an extremely expansive mood and want to go still further, it's suggested by the management that you invest in the Book of Tokens. So that's the tarot, the highlights, and the Book of Tokens, all by Paul Case. Uh, so you can see we're pushing Paul Case very, very hard here. <laughs> However, uh, just that, <clears throat> so that you won't have any misconception about what's going on here, I would suggest that otherwise you read everything. <laughs> uh, so that we will, so that we'll, hi, hi there, Diddy. So that we'll have a, a very Catholic approach in the, not in the religious sense, but in the literary sense. And that we can all, we can all use. So it doesn't really make too much difference what else you read. Uh, you could read the outline of science, for instance, and you could read Leaves of Grass, and uh, you could go through Shakespeare hurriedly. And of course, the Bible is a good book, and definitely Alice in Wonderland, because that deals with, uh, with cards and chess and, and such things. White rabbits. And uh, greetings. Hi. So, uh, Anyway, that's some suggested reading, uh, but just to get back to the, the textbook, of course, is Paul Case's book, The Tarot. So if you master that, uh, that'll save a lot of time for you and for everybody else. Uh, just learn the book by heart, learn the highlights by heart, and learn the book of tokens by heart. And as they say about chicken soup, 
it wouldn't hurt you. <laughs> so, uh, the, you probably, all of you are very perceptive, many of you are artists, many of you are scientifically inclined, and being so perceptive, you probably noticed <clears throat> in the basic tableau of the tarot that this is the first key in the basic tableau. And, uh, uh, what's important about this is that being the first key, it is sort of the fundamental thing that you have to do in the tarot to achieve the astounding success that we're all aiming for. And the first thing that you have to do is to realize that uh, whatever powers you may exercise, and I hope you exercise all of your powers, just uh, as your friend, uh, whatever powers you exercise, they are without exception derived powers. And so this fancy gesture that you see the magician holding his wand and going so uh, is symbolically, according to the ancient tradition of the tarot in the West, it simply means that, that this magician, which is yourself, recognizes that uh, all the powers that we use are derived from, uh, you might say, the basic reality of what's going on in the universe. And this is considered uh, a very uh, healthy attitude as far as uh, Kabbalists and tarotiers and uh, all the rest of the people who are seriously involved in the path of the West. This more or less uh, keeps you out of any inflationary spiral, which uh, you know what that, you, you hear lots about that, but I'm speaking now of the ego inflationary spiral that you might get into if you thought that, by God, these powers are really mine, I can feel them, they're mine, I'm, I'm exercising them, you know, man, I feel it, I've got it, you know, so all that sort of thing. Well, that's, these affirmations and statements are fine, providing that you come back to the original notion that the power isn't coming from your cornflakes, it's coming from <laughs> the universe. And uh, so, uh, you know, don't, please don't make this enormous error in your calculations. That would sort of put you back into the uh, sorcerer's apprentice class, and we don't want that to happen to nice people like yourselves. Well, <clears throat> That's the most important thing about this key, because that'll keep you out of more trouble than uh, you have any dream of. Then I would say the next most important thing is that uh, this fellow here, who represents your self-conscious aspect, is the one who is energizing things. Now this is sort of Raja Yoga, if you want to term it that, this whole business of the tarot, because it deals primarily uh, with liberation through uh, what you can do with your mind, uh, assuming that uh, we, we can see that we all have beautiful bodies. All we have to do is look around the room and we know that we have beautiful bodies, but uh, perhaps it's the mind that uh, is what needs working on mostly. And this is where the tarot is extremely useful to us because it tells us a whole lot about ourselves which we can apply. And that's uh, that's what we want to do is, is apply it, you know, so something uh, of an extremely practical nature as far as 
what we're doing all the time with ourselves, or not doing, or think we're doing, or however you want to put it. If you remember that in this picture, he does have on the red robe, you see. He can take it off and go around his underwear or a streak or whatever, but if he's going to be a magician, he has this on, you see. He's wearing it. Now, this, this is his desire nature, and this activates his, you might say, his particular universe, which is uh, symbolized by these four implements on the table that you see here. In the Kabbalistic view, these four implements uh, correspond to the universe. And whereas most people might take a low view of man, the Kabbalists take an extremely high view of man, and they say that the energies that come through man uh, literally affect the, the universe. And he is, man is, uh, in, in the Kabbalistic definition, is a mediator between the inner aspects of life and the outer. So this is uh, how he exercises his power. And he exercises, of course, primarily through his desire and nature. And the reason I say that is, you'll note that in Paul's chapter on the, on the magician, he winds up by saying, all magic is in the will. Well, then there's another saying in, uh, that's an old hat to most of you, that behind will stands desire. So why let, let's get the, you know, get the agony over with and understand that the, the motivating force in the magic that we perform on ourselves is desire. Now this desire is something that normally we think of as being our own, but according to the, we'll say for, to blame it on somebody, let's say according to the Kabbalist definitions, of desire, it is a it is a cosmic principle, and the desire that we exercise in ourselves is that <coughs> desire that is, uh, you might say, our birthright uh, from being a part of life and particularly human life. So we have to become very very well acquainted with our own desire nature, and we have to become very well acquainted with our own motivation, which is virtually the same thing. You might say, well, okay, so far so good, but what is, after all, what is this guy doing? What is he supposed to be doing? Well, this gets back to the creative act, which we're supposed to be doing, uh, but sometimes it's mostly reacting rather than acting that we get ourselves involved in. And uh, this is naughty, naughty as far as uh, the, the tarot is concerned and the Kabbalah. But since everybody suffers for, from this particular disability, we don't have to become too exercised about being naughty. If we're all in the same boat, uh, the problem is to improve the situation and more particularly to improve our life situation. And this is one extremely important part of it. Uh, these are, you might say, the tools by which the magician, who is like an artist, effects whatever he's supposed to do. In other words, this, this fellow is yourself. This is your self-conscious waking self. 
and he's, his inspiration comes from within, which is symbolized up in terms of symbolism in the tarot means within. It means in instead of out. So uh, he's deriving his inspiration for the special work that he has to do from this point, which is really not particularly in any one place. It's anywhere it happens to be because, of course, the innermost reality, which is represented by the ensafor in the white ground of this tree that you see here, now, this isn't in any particular place. It's anywhere you happen to be. That's where it is. And so it's right there on the point of his wand, wherever his wand happens to be, wherever you are or I am or anything else. That's the point that connects us with this remarkable thing, which is reality that's represented by this white ground. Now, the reality is big enough so that you don't particularly have to worry about running out of steam. That's a very important concept, that you'll never run out of steam as long as this, you're holding this point in the right place, which is anywhere you happen to put it. You see, that makes it very convenient all around. Uh, the path of this energy that, that we express ourselves through goes through the archetypal world, which is very much like the Plato world, represented by the wand, and then it goes to the cup, and then to the sword, and then to the pentacle. And just in review, these four uh, worlds are represented, if you take the Kabbalistic worlds as one tree, it's there are four trees hung out like this in the in the whole, the whole affair. But if you take it on one tree, then the archetypal world is here. Uh, this is Hokma, wisdom. And the creative world is here. This is Bina. This is the formative world. And this is the world of the result, the world of action down here. And again, this would be, of course, correspond to Hokma. This would correspond to Bina. This would be Yetzirah, the world of action that's here. And finally, the coin would be down here in the land of the result, which is, say, 375 Sutter Street. So, uh, pardon me? Oh, the sword is here. This is Yetzirah. This is beauty. And you can see that uh, beauty, by the way, is, is fairly obvious that it's central in the whole uh, Kabbalistic scheme and represents a, a goal for for all of us. Uh, the definition of beauty is something that I'm sure we would, each one of us would have a different, different definition, but uh, as a, as a, the, the mark you might say on the target, it's an excellent one because uh, if you stick to this, you really can't get into too much trouble. There's so much involved in the definition of beauty in the Kabbalah that you just, you just concentrate on that as I say, you won't get lost either. <laughs> You'll notice that uh, there are a lot of roses around, and uh, you've probably heard of the Rosicrucians in your travels, and, and they're very much interested in roses, <laughs> and there are roses down here, and lilies. Well, now these roses uh, represent the desire nature, which, uh, again, is basic. And if you remember the Rosicrucian symbol, it's a a rose in the center of a cross. 
the equal armed cross that's on the on the breast of the high priestess. This rose, uh, in this particular condition, represents the unfolding desire nature that we're all involved in. This is the thing that keeps us going uh, day in and day out. The purified desire nature is symbolized twice in the tarot. Well, then we're in, we're in a different uh, beat altogether. You see, in other words, uh, let's put it this way. Your desire nature can be aspiration, your own aspirations. Now, this is not some damn fool uh, uh, business of, uh, oh, what's the word for it? Really? Well, I can't think of it. But, you know, it's not, it's, it's not sublimating you know, your lower nature and making it into a, you know, some exquisite thing, which is uh, what they teach you to do in school. Uh, this isn't what it's, it's all about. In other words, it's very natural for you to have aspirations. That's the most natural Based thing. Based on memory and your desire nature. Well, it's right. a little more than that, because your inner self is, is uh, pushing you in this direction of aspiration. And if it's if it's not something that somebody says now now Mike don't you think that this is a beautiful thing and don't you think you ought to do this Mike you know that's not aspiration that's not what I'm talking about I'm talking about your own aspirations which have nothing whatsoever to do with uh, somebody pushing you uh, along the beautiful path or the path of light or the path of glory or the path that leads straight to God you know because yeah. sometimes uh, it doesn't seem as though it's leading straight to God, and it is just the same. What you said is very true about uh, getting your desire free of the memory bank. In other words, you pioneer with your desire. It's just as though you had a boat and you said, I don't know what the hell's out there, like Columbus. But I like to sail, and I want some adventures, and I want to see what the heck is going on. So out you go. And the desire of nature is the engine, the wind or whatever, but it's the thing that makes it go, and you're in it, see? And that's your, that's your vehicle, then. That's, that's the faring forth of the fool. The fool doesn't know where the hell he's going. That's why he's a fool. Uh, but uh, in a general way, he does. He's not such a fool as uh, it appears. <laughs> I know, and I'm con I feel, there, I feel yeah. what we're talking about, but I'm... Well, you're supposed to feel it because uh, <laughs> it's not an intellectual thing that yeah, you can, that's, uh, okay, that's you know, you can't, uh, you can't get at it in those terms. That's right. Okay. You can't Thank get you. at it in those terms. See, um, it's, you, you, you have a... Uh, a very, let's say, a very clear sensation that something is going to happen that's important to you, but you don't know what it is. So that gives you a certain direction anyway. You know, you have a feeling, well, if I go over there, I have a feeling that something important is going to happen, but you don't know what it is. But you go anyway because you can be led. Uh, if you're not the type of person who can be led, you won't go. 
And that's the end of the story, period. Finish. You say, no, I, I'm not, I think I'll stay here with my things, which uh, is everything in the memory bank. My pet ideas, all my glorious notions and everything else. You know, I'm going to hang on to my dolly. I'm Don't you take my dolly away from me. Or my teddy bear, or whatever the heck it happens to be. <laughs> That's what I mean. Yeah. I'm confused about the difference in these two, yeah. these two attitudes. See, the, as I say, the, the fool is not as much of a fool as he looks on the surface when he does things like this, because there is, a, on the magician's head, you know, there is an encircling uh, band, which is the band of the spirit, that limits the ignorance. See, the, the, uh, we intuitively, we know what's going on, but we don't know the details, and the details are the part that we're ignorant, but we know essentially what's true. That's the only reason we can hack it. We could never stand it otherwise. If we didn't intuit the, the truth about life, we could never possibly take it. But inside, we know what's going on, you see. And we really do. So we put up with all the garbage. Because in our hearts, we know that there's something tremendous that's going on, and we never lose sight of this inside, you see. And that supports us. And then the, the problem, of course, is to get the, the ordinary self-consciousness aware of what the inside knows. And the only way that it can do it is to try. In some small ways, I can self-consciously appreciate some small truth. But often what will happen is I'll just say, God, that's really scary. I don't know if I like that. Well, that's you remember in the Gita again, I'm not trying to push the Gita too hard, but it's a remarkable book that, you know, Arjuna keeps pestering Krishna to... to he said, you know, he says, come on, let me see what's really going on. You know, come on. And you got it all, you know. Show me. So Krishna says, okay. You, know, you want to see what's going on? And old Arjuna says, ah! You know, <laughs> help, help, help. Turn it off, turn it off. That's enough. I just want to go real slow. Yeah, well, so do I. I mean, one of my buddies, when I started in the tower, he wanted to go real fast and he went very fast into the nearest institution, and uh, he was in and out of there for years. He went real fast. <laughs> That's the story of the four prophets who went into the One went blind, one went crazy, and one went in peace and came out. Of one what? What was the last one? Went in peace and came out in peace. Well, it's the same thing too with the, as you remember, the Ark of the Covenant. The only one who could approach the Ark was the high priest, and the only reason he could approach it was that uh, his his uh, resistance was, by this time, uh, after all the training he had, his resistance was great enough so that he could handle it. I mean, it, the uh, the vibes are pretty heavy, and if you've read any descriptions of of what can happen to you when 
Kundalini gets on the loose, uh, you wouldn't, <clears throat> you really wouldn't want it. You know, it's pretty bad. So, uh, it's like anything else in excess. Uh, it's a bad trip, you know. When, like, say, like, if you go for slowly, like, uh, your resistance would, is it, how can you measure it? Is, what weight can you tell? If, what resistance you have or if you even have it? Well, uh, you can usually tell by where you are in society. I mean, if they've got you in a box somewhere uh, and, and they're sticking you with a pole or something, and the, you know, this is the way they communicate, you can be sure that somewhere along the line... <coughs> you made a mistake. You made a mistake. <laughs> but... Uh, it's very much like, you know, people who insist on, on overdoing pranayama. And if you over-oxygenate the brain, it's an irreversible process, and you become right then and there a piece of burned toast, you know. And you know what happens to them. I mean really burned toast, the black kind, you know. So anyway, black is beautiful, but not in toast. Believe me. So, and it's not good in your head either. Yes. Except for the, every year of my life, I feel I'm getting crazier and crazier, and the crazier I get. But I know. But do you see, Mike? You know by definition uh, the, that as long as you know that you're getting crazy, <coughs> you're not. Just that's for your own comfort. Crazy, isn't it? Yeah. That's, that's okay. See, that's, that's when you don't know that you're crazy that you have to look out. Pardon me? What do you mean? Oh, I was just making a joke. You know? uh, because, like, I know there's entities that aren't seen. And, like, is, is that what you mean, or do you mean some other? Well, um, in other words, if you blow it real bad, uh, your fellow men uh, and women, of course, won't understand what's going on, so they will be very bumbling and try to be helpful, and uh, inevitably they'll, you know, they'll put you in some sort of restraint, which oh, is I what I was talking would, oh, about. What about the other? Well, that is pretty much like the DTs, isn't it? And you know, they'll do the same thing. They'll give you, they'll try anything to stop it, you know. Shock treatments or drugs. I'm, or, not, I'm talking about the entities themselves. Oh, the I know, but when these things start to bug you, you know, it's, uh, it's just like the DTs. And so you react, and so your fellow man observes your reactions. And, uh, you know, if you I mean, begin. As far as, as, far as If uh, you begin. Like the, the the comedian, you know, you remember the guy on TV who used to go. Uh, you remember him? <laughs> you know, he was very funny, you know, and uh, he'd be talking along, and all of a sudden he'd go, <laughs> and, you know, and it really it really shook you. you know? So what do you mean by TV? Oh, delirium tremens, oh. which is uh, a happy side effect from uh, alcohol. And you, if you if you want to catch a good 
rendition of that, be sure to see Ray Moland and uh, Lost Weekend. He's very good at it. I mean, when the bugs start crawling all over him, you really feel it. You know, he does a marvelous job. Yes. Uh, this sounds like I'm being facetious, but I'm not. I knew somebody that put together Hatha Yoga and BOTA and um, Kahuna. Yeah. And what else did she throw in there? Something else. Well, witchcraft, actually. And she really, she really blew her top physically and just barely made it back out again. Uh huh. I mean, the heat went up. And she nearly didn't make it. Yeah. And it was impatience, I guess, and over-eagerness, you know, put everything together and see what will happen. Well, this buddy of mine, you know, he, he literally invoked uh, disaster. I mean, he asked for it, and uh, not in a figurative sense, he asked for it in a literal sense. He said, pour it to me, and, uh, <laughs> and the powers that be really poured it to him, and, uh, you know. So he looked through it? Yeah, he lived through it, but as I say, he was in and out of the hospital for his whole life, you know. I mean, he had all sorts of, he'd be very small. Didn't and, he ever uh, say, he'd think, okay, I, I'll he'd go? Think one, one day he'd think he was a letter and he'd mail himself and, <laughs> and they'd have to take the whole post office apart to get him out of the, uh, the, the package uh, conveyor, you know. Yeah, very much do. Overdo, yes. Uh, I just recently heard this uh, story that Alexander David Neal tells again about uh, the process of uh, materializing. Uh, an object of your imagination, yeah. a living person, yeah. right? A projection, uh, and it becomes and, a... Uh, well, it, uh, it, it makes a deeper impact on me every time I hear it. It seems to have something to do with the circle of ideas that have just been mentioned. And I thought I would, you know, do a thumbnail sketch of it and ask a certain question about the, how it ends. Uh, <clears throat> she, she learns from a llama how to do this, how he... She had learned that he could do it because uh, she would run into him in places where he wasn't, uh, and other people. That's would hard see to this. do right there. Yeah, other, other people would see. Of course, you know you're, you, you know that you're saying a paradox. I mean, uh, you know what you mean, and we know what you mean. But if you just wrote it, if you just made a recording of it, uh, that she saw him where he wasn't is a, is a paradox, as you well know. Yeah, well, like he would be sitting in his... <laughs> That's uh, like seeing him when he wasn't there, you know? That's what you just said. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it, That's it, hard it, to do. To work something like that, apparently he, he would be sitting in his uh, monastery wherever and... Uh, uh, but able to travel around in another body which some people could see and maybe some people couldn't. And... Uh, uh, well, the, the point is that she decides to make. Oh, it's just like me. I'm in bed in Mill Valley, as you know. But I, I mean, one of my vehicles is here. Go ahead, Tom. Getting more fun all the time. The thing that the thing that seems to become important is not the possibility of doing this, because she's very convincing that you can do this sort of thing. She made this uh, amiable little monk. I think she described him as an amiable sort of uh, humorous sort of monk. Uh, as a companion, and she worked on this. She, she did the proper ceremonials, I guess. There were ceremonials, but it was primarily 
uh, a mental construction and yeah. then externalizing that mental construction in yeah. some way. And, and uh, she said, at first, uh, uh, no one could, could see, see, it. Her, see it but herself or, or, or sense it, but some people might sense, something. first of all, sense that something is in the room. And when it gets strong enough, other people can actually see the figure. It's sort of like a, a robot, and it begins to take on its own uh, lifelike qualities. Uh, that that that's the first striking thing. Is first you have well, that's this. That's the golem, isn't it? First, yeah. For well, first you have this cartoon that's moving around, but then the cartoon, without your troubling, will do certain characteristically lifelike acts, uh, like maybe. Uh, brushing its teeth or something that you didn't tell it to do with your mind. Uh, in other words, it starts to take on a life of its own. And then uh, uh, it, the behavior becomes more complex. And she noticed that it became, uh, uh, forget what the word quality she gave, but like sneering. And it, the face started to turn and, and would start to make fun of her. It, it, it's like a friend burning. Initiation into dramatic and uh, elemental. Well, it's like that. It's like that. But this is the point. I, I, there's a point to my. I don't, I'm not just trying to tell a story, but I'm interested in this conversion that takes place autonomously. I don't understand that. Uh, first, you get this thing going, and, and uh, everything's nice. So she chose. She had a good temperament. She chose a groovy little monk, and uh, he stopped being groovy, and he. Uh, started to annoy her and seemed to become even threatening and uh, she realized that she was in trouble and she said it took her six months to undo this thing to unthink it or however it was something like unthinking it and in a western context one could see i mean there are people in hospitals who have this kind of problem and uh, obsession and uh, can't escape the yes. thing that's tormenting them but well, she hated something that took on an autonomy and a negative autonomy. That I don't understand. Well, actually, though, uh, Tom, she was energizing the whole thing. I mean, uh, I, I've read a lot of her works, and uh, uh, from what I, from what my own feeling is about Alexander Neal, is that whereas she was a very conscientious uh, student, uh, I don't think that uh, some of the psychology was thoroughly mastered on her part. In other words, I think if she'd had a Kabbalistic background, she'd have been better off, and she would have understood that that she was actually energizing this this guy, and that just because he happened to become malicious didn't mean that uh, uh, he was uh, to be put away or something like that. Uh, in other words, in other words. This w would be like her shadow, the shadow self in herself. In other words, it was drawing something out of her, uh, which uh, she probably wouldn't recognize or didn't want to recognize in herself, you see, in presenting it to her. But it was, uh, it was herself all the time. She energized this creature altogether. I mean, the sneer was hers, actually, though she yes, didn't know it. Yes, yes. Right. Yeah, in other words, uh, in, in terms of overall psychology, uh, the, the, if we saw a devil or something like that, our first thought would be that it was an outside thing. 
but uh, it isn't. In other words, we're looking at our own shadow. This is exactly what the devil represents in the tarot, along with a whole lot of other things. Yes? Well, you don't talk about that a lot. Um, well, he, he not only talks about it, but he was in the business. Right. You know, he was meeting him all the time. He, you know, highly, hi there, familiar friend, you know. And he goes, Aah. he says, yeah, well, how to do? Nice to see you again. I didn't expect to see you this afternoon, but do sit down and have a cigar and make yourself at home. Don't get excited. Just take it easy, you know. I'm the doctor. So <laughs> <laughs> And uh, it's, as I say, if Alexandra had been psychologically oriented, sufficiently oriented, uh, she would have recognized what was going on. You see, it's just like a bad dream, you know. In a, bad, in a real bad dream, you think that it's something else. You don't think it refers to you. I mean, I'm speaking about John Doe, the famous John Doe or the celebrated man in the street or whatever, but the last thing the average person thinks of is that that's me, you know. There's some real ugly bit in the dream they can't possibly associate that with themselves in any way, shape, or fashion. But in, in the, the, the field of psychology, it's, it's well known that it's, it is an aspect of oneself because Whereas we like to say, well, he's awful, or she's god-awful, or vice versa, or whatever. We don't see that this is part of our potential, too. And we have to see this. You know, that we're, as the managers pointed out, uh, the only difference between ourselves and the so-called uh, uh, psychological deviates is that they're a little more in one direction than we are. But. Isn't that reluctance to admit the uh, dark side and then what makes things like witch hunt so popular? Oh, yeah. Sure. It's much more convenient to hang it on the other fellow mm -hmm. than to hang it on yourself. And racism and bottom of it. The part about that, that that doesn't become clear by saying that this is part of uh, Alexander David Neal's insights is. Uh, this seeming autonomy of the uh, of the of the of the phantasm, uh, that the way in which it seems to, without attention. Well, you uh, you said it right there. The seeming autonomy is exactly. Well, it. other people see the creatures too under some conditions. She had a powerful mind. Well, but uh, you you certainly are aware of mass hypnosis. You know how that works. Well, I'm not very aware of it. I've well, it, let me uh, put it to you this way. That mass hypnosis is so powerful that you can, a whole group of people can see something that isn't there. I've heard of this, but well, I don't know. Uh, it always happens on an individual basis in hypnosis. In other words, if I were to hypnotize you and tell you that there's a purple and green spotted dog here, you would actually see it and you would take it on oath that you'd seen it, you know, yeah. and you had seen it, as far as you're concerned. Now, the same thing can happen with a mass of people, and obviously there's some connection between what you're talking about with Alexandra Neal, in other words, her familiar 
to another person. This is strictly on the mental level. Excuse me, Fritzy, did you want to yes, carry on here? Okay. Now, we have quite a few minutes. I did an interesting meditation on this. I noticed comparing this with the fool and the magician, which are on either side of it on the tree of life. You have on the left, on the right side, the fool holding the staff, which corresponds to the middle pillar, as it's, in other words, as it's directly parallel, and his hand is like the scroll on the high priestess's lap, and then the wallet is at the end with the eye in the center. Of it. And on the magician key, you have the cup over the scroll again on the ionic column. I didn't realize that the scrolls are the same thing the centrifugal coming out of Kepler. And I was looking up in a book on columns, and I noticed Maud mentioned last week that the eye in hieroglyph could create. And on columns, it mentioned that the ionic column, the very center of the scroll, is called the eye. Say that again? On ionic columns, the very center of the scroll is called the eye. Well, then another thing that's interesting about it too is that uh, the uh, the one four splits and goes in opposite directions. In other words, it's just like in the last key of the tarot, there's supposed to be a spiraling force that's going in opposite directions, but in the in the column it goes like this, and then the whirling goes in opposite directions. That's Aries. And that, and that makes the uh, that makes the polarity. You see. And it was very interesting because I was looking at these pillars like the scroll pillars and that they haven't unwound. They're still wound like the buds haven't bloomed. And I started thinking of ionic columns and ionic substances, which is a substance that has another substance in it that becomes positively and negatively charged, like salt and water. And so that key would be like the positive and the negative. And then the binding force between the dials. Very good. We'll give you a passing grade on that. That's just because I'm a jealous professor. You had the professors that when you do something real good, they look down their noses and give you a passing grade. They don't even tell you it's good. Have you had those guys? Often. Yeah. So have I. No, we'll give you a hundred and one. Maybe I'll get eat for effort, but uh, I'm still remembering what we were talking about, about memory. I'll give you a day so you can make it up. Okay. <laughs> There'll be time. Uh, and I was thinking about uh, the relationship of the fool to the memory in the wallet. And it's not clear to me at all, but, but he certainly doesn't have his memories out fondling them and playing with them. Uh, he's, he's got them packed in the wallet and he's carrying them. Oh, the end of he can get to them, but they're not. But he's not, he's not wrapped up in them. He's yeah. not attached to them, which well, is the distinction maybe. That's a, little bit, that's a little bit like the fool of God, too, who isn't concerned with knowledge. Mm. But he carries it along. He, but he carries it along. If he needs it, it's there. It's again, it's like the folding donkey and the in the Chinese. You remember one of the sages had this folding donkey, you remember that? that uh, 
It was a instead of water. No, no, it, it it was uh, it folded up and he could put it in his pocket, and uh, any time that he needed it, he just took it out and unfolded it and wrote it. <laughs> I've forgotten which one. You know, I don't know the names of the Chinese sages, but it's an absolutely delightful idea. Uh-huh. And uh, there's something very similar in the nature of the tarot, because. You don't want to go around mumbling tarot all day long, <laughs> but uh, it's there, you know. If you if you want to get into it at any time, why it isn't going to run away. And I know that in my travels, I remember one time I was bearing down pretty heavily on the uh, area of Hermes, and I discovered to my youthful amazement that. Uh, the whole band of occult knowledge in this sort of the uh, spectrum sense of colors and so on, the, the sort of spectral band of all the occult knowledge and the whole occult path and everything else is just like a, it's, um, oh, rather like something like a planet in the sky, you know, like the moon. It's always there and it's always been there, you know. And that uh, anytime you want to go there, well, it's all there, you know, just go ahead. It's all there waiting for you. But the thing that struck me was that was the permanent aspect of it, you know. There was nothing ephemeral about it. It was all solid stuff, you know, like we'll say uh, chemical theory or physical theory or everything else. And that uh, a couple of thousand years, nothing, you know, forget it. A couple of million years or a billion years, it's always been there <laughs> as a you know as a sort of a solid stratum that never changes you know it was kind of a kick to me and of course it was associated with the mercury center on the tree of life which is perfect intelligence in other words it's a, that was the hermes the hermes element in other words the way or the path has always been there. It doesn't make any difference. It has to do with the cosmos. It doesn't make any difference where you are in the cosmos. It doesn't make a particle of difference. Which planet you're on or what plane you're on or whatever, it's all staked out. That reminds me of, um, I was always interested in high school and college, and I'm sure most of the people in this room were, and certain kinds of things you would find out about or read about or books you would discover and go, wow, this is really makes me excited, but you didn't know why. I never knew why. Maybe astrology. Maybe I'd learn about the planets being so huge, so many millions of miles, you know, just the nature of our universe. And maybe the next thing would be something about psychology. And maybe the next thing would be something about, who knows? Anyway, yeah. all of a sudden now in tarot, I can see all those things I used to get so excited about. It's all the same thing. It's all the same truth. It's all the same knowledge. That's right. And it would just come, there would be a whole field over here that I'd see part of and say, wow, that's really far out, you know. Right. And, and, yeah. It brings it together. Yeah. Yeah, it was all the same search or the same thing, you know. Well, yeah. you know, uh, getting back to an analogy, I have to, in my own case, I have to think of, my recent experience as a beginning, a beginner in art, in other words, studying painting, which was a completely foreign field to me, say I started about seven years ago or something like that, I started in the, in the area of art uh, to, to put some effort into it. 
And what I discovered was that I was developing a new sense altogether that I never had before, this the ability to see. And that I never I never exercised this at all. But obviously it was potentially, you know, it was something that was there, but I never used it. <clears throat> it was only through mucking about with art, and really in my case it is mucking about, <laughs> that uh, uh, that this this sense developed you see. And again, by analogy, what I've discovered over the years with this is that uh, you never exhaust the possibilities of seeing into things uh, perhaps more deeply. All the, you know, just continual ability to see more deeply into things and to see more relationships and so on and so forth. The, the more you pursue it, the more you see. And you don't run out of new things to see because uh, it's a, a limitless uh, subject, you know. But you, uh, you know, it's it's like the art. In other words, your early attempts are really bad, but then as you go along, they get a little better. Maybe they're not, you know, they're not masterpiece, but they're better. And you, when you start in with this, you see certain things and you get very excited about them. Well, uh, twenty years later. Those things seem minor compared with what you see, you know. And another 20 years after that, uh, what you see is even more startling. And that's the way it goes. So you know that uh, one of the one of the terms for, we'll say, the wise man in the old days was the seer, the seer, the one who could see, and. Uh, but what most people didn't realize was that this is a path that's open to everyone. Anybody who wants to see is welcome to see. You know, it's, you know, seek and ye shall find is one way of putting it. Uh, but uh, you can put it even more simply if you want to see, look. Just keep looking and uh, and and look and look and look and look and look and you'll it'll you know it keeps it keeps coming. And it doesn't matter so much anymore what you look at. No, you know, it doesn't make no, any difference. No, no the uh, the very moralistic tone of we'll say the last century, uh, fortunately, has has become outworn because it's been replaced by beauty. In other words, the beauty of reality is is so overpowering to the beholder that it's not a question of morality anymore. It's simply a case of, of wonderment, you see. You don't need morality because you have something to take the place of it. And that's why, as I say, I keep telling you over and over again, that's why beauty is a central feature of the tree of life. Are you making a statement about our race, our mankind's relative position on the wheel. When you say, when you say that, well, I'm just saying that the morality is going to be supplanted by something else. In other words, uh, it's going to be supplanted by a sense of beauty. A sense it's being of, supplanted now today. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yes, yes. That's beyond good and evil. Yes. In other words. Uh, uh, good and evil in the in the this, the sense of moral good and evil because uh, that's that served its purpose but you see unfortunately 
the spontaneous aspect of life can't operate in an atmosphere of the kind of morality that we've been used to. It has to, it has to be freer. In other words, as long as somebody is technically beautiful, uh, why bother about morality? If the thing is beautiful, that's that's it. That see that that really did. <laughs> I guess that's an affirmation. I'm sorry. Don Juan calls it out. Cosmic gone. <laughs> Jason, were you ever on a nightclub, sir? Did you're awful fast on the scenery. No. You could have been. No. Nothing like that. I just wanted, to, if it's okay, to read two sentences from this book. Just I know people do that. We'll give you two sentences. This is because uh, we were talking about love tonight. Now I don't really know high priestess love, but mine says she is. So I'll read it because this really struck me as true. It says love unfolds in the human being traits of his which he never knew in himself. In love, there is much both of the Stone Age and of the witches' Sabbath, and I really like that. <laughs> That's uh, Ospensky. Well, the first part I understand, <laughs> but the, the last part I I can't connect to it. I, I don't think I'm with it, <clears throat> so I plead guilty, Your Honor. I think he's talking about the strangeness, and he's talking about the fool's journey. He's talking about getting into something that's so new and so powerful and, and, and so beautiful at the same time that there's just all kinds of parts of you that when you initially find them, parts you weren't even aware of, may look to you as key 15. Key 15. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm sure that my recent statements uh, just a few minutes ago about beauty supplanting morality could be thoroughly misunderstood, but I don't think that anybody here misunderstands. It, uh, it's simply uh, a propriety which is cosmic rather than local. In other words, uh, the beautiful life of the headhunter is to go out and whack some guy's head off and eat his brains for soup. That's beautiful if you're a headhunter, but uh, you can do better than that, you know, uh, after a while, I think. And uh, that's, that's all that I'm talking about, that on a relative basis, the, the concern with uh, beauty would, would be sufficient. Uh, I mean an inner concern, not, uh, not anything compulsive. I mean, the inner concern whether it would be uh, sufficient to uh, take care of the law. This is indicated, by the way, so we won't get too mixed up about it all and stuff. But this is indicated here. This is the higher aspect. This is the law here, and this is the higher aspect. And when we move <coughs> in our evolution, when we move beyond this, as far as where our inspiration is coming as a race, this is where it's going to come from. It's going to come from this side, and 
and as when it does, uh, this is going to look very strange to us is from an historical point of view that we ever lived in this kind of an area, which is the one that we're living in right now. This is the Iron Age, and this is iron, and this is Mars, and that's exactly where we live. It's going to look very strange to us, I repeat, <clears throat> when we get out of it. It's going to be very hard to believe. It's going to be like some of the not exaggerated fantasies that you see in, say, the uh, what's the one, the World of the Apes or something, that's, you know, the movie, which is, uh, of course, fascinating satire on their present condition. Is that from five to six here, by? Like no, five to, from five to four. I was thinking about... Uh, well, in other words, in simple terms, if you're animated by a spirit of goodwill, that's the law. That's your law right there. And so that takes care of everything. Uh, if you aren't, well, then you have to have other kinds of laws. So the tribal law is very satisfactory for uh, people who are animated by bad will. The law takes care of them. That's all I'm getting at. Yeah. Uh, at the end of that book, Supernature, yeah. uh, he says that he thinks that we're all developing our telepathy and, and stuff like that um, so that in the future age, technology will be, we'll think of it as a, the toy of our infancy. We won't need it anymore. Well, uh, I think that we can elaborate on that right here and now and make it a little clearer, if it's all right with you. Oh, please do. No, what it, uh, I think that what's going to boil down to is that our choice of, uh, of expression, in other words, what we want, what kind of a life that we want to live, is going to determine how much technology we have. In other words, uh, we will probably strike some kind of a balance between technology and in a completely different life from the one we have now. I'm speaking of the masses, in other words. If they decide, for instance, that they want to live a loving life, we'll say, well, they're going to have to have support systems to support this kind of a life, and they will probably use technical means in order to do it as conveniently and efficiently as possible, is what I'm getting at. But it's unthinkable to me that uh, uh, we would dispense completely with our uh, efficient support systems even if we could do it all with the power of our minds? Well, then there would be no necessity for, I'm talking about on this particular level of expression, the physical okay. level. In other words, the, the natural system that we have now is, uh, if you like, agriculture is the basic industry, and that's our basic support. I mean, of course, fisheries and everything, but basically agriculture is uh, our, our main support. Well, of course, we could all uh, go back to the Australian Aboriginal um, exercise of uh, digging for roots with a stick, you know, and consider that this uh, was a very virtuous act or something like that. But I don't think me, he meant that. But uh, as far as I'm concerned, this would be a lot of foolishness, you know. Yeah, I guess well, he wasn't taking it far enough. If you're going to do everything with your mind, then you don't need a body at all. Um, 
Well, well then the best thing to do then is to be dead, isn't it? Because then the you're living, side. then you're on the other side, and so on. But I was I was speaking of the physical world, and obviously you have to have support systems if you're going to live in the physical plane. And uh, well, I like the idea of striking a balance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the balance is between what kind of a life you want to live, the the nature of that life that you want to live. In other words, that is the thing that will de-emphasize will say gadgets. Uh, if you want to live a gadgety life, that will emphasize the gadgets, and there will undoubtedly be gadgety countries that you can go and live in the midst of the gadgets, and there will be other countries where the emphasis is somewhere else. Well, I think if we could just take our attention off defense and weapons, you know. Well, those are gadgets, aren't they? Bombs. You know? Yeah, they're gadgets. I mean, this is uh, these are toys. They're toys, right? Yeah, I mean, I was uh, I went down to Inukern. Uh, that's a naval ordnance testing station, and uh, you know they set off these rockets. They had Tiny Tim. That's the one that uh, went through the the went to the hidden submarine uh, bases in Germany, and they had these enormous concrete uh, ceilings, roofs over the submarine pens. There was something like 40 feet of concrete or something like that. And Tiny Tim would go right through those things like uh, you'd stick a knife in a piece of cheese. And the reason was that the nature of a rocket is that if it comes up against a resistance, like we'll say a concrete wall, and it starts to penetrate the wall, it doesn't lose any velocity just because it happens to be going through the wall. In other words, the velocity uh, the uh, the output of the rocket is just the same when it goes in a foot uh, as it was when it started. That's the difference between uh, a cannonball and a rocket, see? So when the rockets started in, they just sort of bored a hole just by their energy. They just bored a hole right through the concrete and went through. Well, getting back to Inukern, when I was there, uh, they were firing these rockets, you know, and I, I just happened to be fortunate to get there, you know, so uh, they fired Tiny Tim and it was just like an earthquake. No, literally, the whole base would just go like this, you know, and the guys who were shooting them off would go, Woo, get it, 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 in a 40-mile range, and a 30-mile range, you know, and they take these smaller rockets out. They'd had them in the icebox. This was in the desert. It was higher than Dickens. And then they used to keep the uh, the rockets in the icebox, and they'd take them out, put them in the, you know, in the thing that they shot them out of, you know, and away we go. Oh, <gasps> you know. Oh, my goodness. That's oh, yeah. Good. You know, down we go. Boom. Oh, did you see that, fellas? Oh, man. You know, you know this big 4th of July. Uh -huh. Wargasm, they call it. Wargasm. Yeah. Good. Good. I hadn't heard that term. That's Some good. general came out with that in the middle of the Vietnam War. Did he? Yeah, that's good. That's good. Well, there is this... Uh, this this very very strong element in uh, I guess in the male especially that uh, a fascination with gadgets you know that just is uh, almost 
too much. Look, it works. It works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's completely um, as far as uh, what we'll say the goals of the Tower of Kabbalah. It's completely disoriented. You know, it's really like the, the mad doctor so and so. You know, in his laboratory. You know. <sighs> <laughs> Confident expectancy can only be real for a person if he has some um, some sort of uh, philosophical background, so that he understands why he should be confidently expected. You know, it, it, you've got to have something. You have to have a reason for that to make it uh, uh, more than just uh, a childish affair. You know how children are. You say, "Now look, darling. You know you say your prayers tonight, and and uh, Jesus will bring you a pink rabbit uh, for Easter or whatever it happens to be." Well, this is a uh, you know this is okay for for children, but uh, to have confident expectancy, you have to have some awareness of what the basis for it is. You know, why should I be confidently expected? Hell, everything's going to hell, so why should I be confidently expected? There has to be some something else and of course in the Kabbalah the something else is the whole philosophy of the Kabbalah which is you know it's 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 let's say it's very simple but if you want to make it complex you can make it complex too I mean their definition of reality is a very simple definition it's not hard to grasp the main thing is that uh, you have to understand it isn't Santa Claus it isn't that kind of a thing, and uh, you have to sort of um, expand your mental view of what reality is. You have to sort of, you know, I'm not talking about you, but I mean a person has to really push the sides of his head out and out and out and out to get some conception of, of what reality is like. And then when you get a, a pretty uh, big husky definition of reality and you realize that this is your foundation well then you can see why you might be confidently expected in that yes. vein uh, everyone well almost everyone in the United States today is confidently expecting some kind of financial disaster. <laughs> I mean, really, there's this well, tremendous momentum. On this well, you see, what what they're actually doing, Mike, is creating a disaster. Yes. Uh, because I remember uh, one, I think it was the post-war recession that we had, and uh, all the prophets of doom, like uh, Kiplinger, and there was another one, the David Lawrence letter that came out, you know, and and these letters went out to thousands of businessmen all over the United States. They had a tremendous following, you know. And all they said was doom, 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 you know. Well, uh, they finally talked everybody into it. And uh, as you point out, this is a, a very materialistic approach. You know, what would be something serious would be if there was a crop failure in the United States. That would be, uh, that would really wake everybody up, you know. But uh, praise God, we haven't had anything like that. But it could happen, you know. And God, God help us. I, I hope it doesn't. 
I'm just going to say that last day on the radio, they very reluctantly admitted that the corn crop isn't quite as bad as they had hoped it was going to be. I mean, yeah, really yeah. Very yeah, well, of course, uh, the communication is. Uh, it has its good points and its bad points, and of course we're we're stuck with it from now on. So we've got to get used to it as a as a way of life. But excuse me, when they're the 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 uh, the media have to communicate something. I mean, they have to say something. You know, it's uh, uh, come on, Jason, for God's sake, you're here. Say something. Just don't sit there like a bump on the log. You know what I mean? So I have to say something. <laughs> and the media is the same way. So no matter how, if, if there's nothing else but something lousy to say, they say, you know, they say everything is lousy. But they got to say something. So it's every day. The you know, it's uh, and uh, my wife contributes the Wall Street Journal to. Uh, I don't read the funny paper. I read the Wall Street Journal instead, which is the same thing. And it's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's just fantastic what people think. You know, uh, economists are divided, and there are just as many on one side as there are on the other. And and one says everything's going to hell. Everyone, the other one says, oh, it's really not so bad. You know, and this is every day in the Wall Street Journal. You see, uh, and it's. They have some pretty good writers in there, and it's it's a really it's a fun paper if you don't take it seriously. <laughs> I got to tell you what the Chronicle did. They wrote us. The Chronicle wrote some stories about the nude beaches down in Santa Cruz, and uh, this got to be very good reading. So they had you know every day for a week or two they had an article on on the nude beaches, and then pretty soon a lot of people started from the Bay Area going down to the nude beaches, and so now they're writing stories about all the people that go down and voyeur on the people that are on the nude beaches, and the <laughs> residents are really you know upset because until the Chronicle had their stories you know everything was cool, and now there's a big problem with hundreds of people you know so there's just this whole thing. But the merchants are happy about it. Yeah, they yeah. like it. Yeah, yeah, you know, they, they sell lots of gasoline, Who lots of pop and, uh, and <laughs> popcorn and hot dogs yeah. and everything else. <laughs> and uh, besides the, uh, you know, the uh, the very progressive young man getting ahead who suddenly goes out and gets a lot of cheap uh, Japanese uh, uh, binoculars and rents them by the hour. <laughs> Free enterprise. Oh yeah. Well, it's a uh, life gets more exciting daily, you know. <laughs> it's not so much uh, whether you're topless or bottomless. It's the setting. If you're if you're used to if you're used to seeing people on the beach in bathing suits and suddenly you don't see them with bathing suits or all or nothing or whatever it happens to be, it's quite a shock. Uh, but I guess if we'd been you know if we'd grown up on the Riviera or something like that, it wouldn't bother us too much. But I know from my own experience that uh, I had a visiting fireman come out from New York and the one place he wanted to go was. The, the uh, lunch place on Broadway where they had topless waitresses. Well, I I went into this place with this guy, and whereas I've been an art student for some time, I practically 
fell over because of the setting. In other words, it looked so absolutely ridiculous to me to, to walk up and to the hat check girl, give her my hat, and here she is, you know, with no top. And then I go over to the waitress, and she said, what will you have, you know? Uh, and uh, I said, well, you know, I didn't know what else to do. I said, well, what part of the world for you? She said, oh, I'm a student at Berkeley. <laughs> but the... It, it was a setting. I mean, it was, you know, it's just, uh, well, it was exactly like going to Grace Cathedral and uh, having uh, uh, the late lamented Albert Pike come down with the crows, you know, only stark naked, streaking. <laughs> the whole procession behind them, all equally streaking down, in the organ playing and the choir and everything else, you know. So, I mean, it's, it's, uh, Say, have you been an art student? There's nothing new about it, so. Well, people don't expect that, so that's exactly why it doesn't happen. Sure, it makes it <laughs> it makes it really funny. Uh, getting back to our our friend here, uh, from a manipulative point of view, so to speak, uh, the the act of concentration again is. Um, has to do with uh, the mind. We said that this sort of corresponds to Raja Yoga, and uh, those of you who've read, we'll say, you know, some Eastern books and one thing, you know, you know that the mind has a tendency to to sort of jump about, and go from one thing to the other. This it follows the laws of association, and it moves all the time. It's always moving around. You think of one thing, and then another thing, and another thing. Well, in most people. And in, in speaking of the averages, uh, this is something that isn't easily controlled. In other words, the mind just sort of slides from one thing to another. And so from a technical point of view, this concentration that's spoken of here is through practice learning to keep your mind in one spot for quite a long time in a certain, in a certain given area. And again, uh, I think you'll find uh, in practice that if you're not interested in this area, you'll never be able to keep your mind on it for any length of time. Mm -hmm. It has to have it has to have a hold for you, or otherwise you can't just you might say, "Well, now I'm going to put my mind on this, whether I'm interested in it or not." That won't work. You can't kid yourself that way. Red rope comes in, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you say put your mind on it, uh, do you mean like uh, can you go for, can you associate one thing after the other as long as it is on that object? Or oh that? yeah. I mean you're not thinking of just one thing. Not one time. point. No. No. I'm not talking about. As long that. as it I'm has talking to do about with that you draw object. a circle like this and you say now there there are going to be some things in the circle and that's what I'm right. going to that's what I'm going to work on right. uh, because <clears throat> to make your mind completely one-pointed to try and do this is it's actually forcing the forcing the issue and this isn't a good idea your mind will gradually come to rest if you start in inside of a reasonable circle and you work in that circle your mind will calm down after a while <clears throat> and finally like a, a a june bug it'll it'll stop of itself yeah 
this must be the symbolism of magical ceremonies. I start out with drawing a circle with a sword. Oh, definitely. A magical ceremony is absolutely ridiculous unless you know what you want to do. That's what the drawing of circle. That's what the drawing a circle represents. You know, this is like I'm going to travel, but you don't know where. So, you know, you're a real traveler. You know, but you don't know where you're going. And of course, you you know, we're all travelers. In when we start in, we're all travelers who don't know where we're going. That's the idea of the pilgrim comes in there. You know, they start out, we'll say, in the fools like that. Yeah, well, they start out in, we'll say, uh, Gay Paris, and they're going to uh, walk across the land to uh, uh, Peking. And they haven't any idea what's uh, in between. That's a real pilgrimage. And that's the way the path is. You start out as a pilgrim, and you haven't any idea where you're going. But, of course, uh, it's, it's, it's just... Since there's no object in having it take any longer than is necessary, it takes long enough, there's usually somebody around to point out, uh, you know, something about it. So, you know, somebody's a little more familiar with it. Yes? About what you're talking, uh, direction, I'm, I'm, my question has to do with the fool. Isn't it true <laughs> that um, in a certain sense you can be like the fool in that you're directionless? You don't really say, well, I've got to do this now, I've got to do that now. But but as being the fool doesn't mean you will not have intermediary goals. I mean, you won't. Being the fool doesn't mean you can't say, "Well, now I'm going to do this trip," you know, because like that's a good thing to do. I mean, isn't it? Well, being a fool means something very specific, in, in we'll say in spiritual terms, it means a specific thing, and that is that uh, it's a negation of the ego. That's what being the fool is. In other words, you simply. Um, affirm some other rule of life besides the rule of the ego. I mean, you know, that, that, that isn't what your life is all about. And that's to be the fool of God or to be a fool in the inner sense. And you might say, well, okay, so um, I uh, negate my ego. That w then where am I, you see? Well, it just so happens that there's a whole world of connection between the, let's say, the soul that's freed of the ego delusion, there's a whole world of things for this soul to become involved in. So that it doesn't go into a world of emptiness. On the contrary, it goes into a world of fullness. And the ego is the empty world. It seems that that's the all-important thing when you're in it, but that's the tiny dot as far as uh, the universe is concerned. That's separation, and that's... Uh, that isn't where it is. Real life is in, is not in separation, and the, of course the ego, uh, it means that the soul is encapsulated in itself. You know, it's it's really uh, uh, the embryo in the egg, and that's in that sort of state. So you don't you don't just go into limbo when you get out of the world of ego. You get into the world of relationships, and they are infinite. And of course. As our experts tell us, in the inner world, the world outside of the ego, the spiritual, the spiritual sun is always shining and you can always see it. In other words, you're always aware of it. When you're, when you're on the ego trip, you're not aware of it. 
and you can get into very desperate straits because you can't see the light. But when you get out of that trip, uh, you can always see the light. It never goes away. Yes. Oh, we spend all this effort and time going clear through all the cards to get to the simplicity of 19 there, don't we, with the, with the children? Yeah. Trying to get there through all this other thing that you Well, in a sense, uh, everything in the cards is, uh, you might say, involved with the physical world. Uh, it's it's they're all everything in there is related to something in the physical world and so all, all the illusions that are in your mind uh, have to do with the illusions that exist in substance because that's what we're talking about it's like uh, we went over to a lady's house the other day and uh, to pick up a package and she said would you like to see my jewelry oh we couldn't very well say uh, we don't want to see your bloody jewelry. It's not our jewelry. Why do we want to see your jewelry? You know. So as a matter of politeness, we said, "Yeah, that'd be nice." You know, not too enthusiastically. So she brought out all this jewelry, which was it was okay. You know, but the way she she dealt, the way she handled it, and the way she talked about it, and everything else, you could see she was really stuck on this stuff. You know, uh, and uh, well, in the first place, it was all. It was all gold, solid gold, gold, and real, real stones. But so what? You know, what? The, who wants to sit around and play with a bunch of jewelry? <laughs> and that's what she was doing. You know, she'd take it out and finger it and hold it up in the light and put it on her hand. And she wasn't any great shakes as far as uh, being a beautiful dame or anything was concerned. But uh, this stuff, you know, she'd put it on. You know, like, isn't this nice? <laughs> well, that's what I'm talking about. Substance, you know, you can get, uh, you can get involved in this stuff. It's, uh, it can get sticky. It can get real sticky. I guess, in a, um, I guess I have a really funny idea about the pool, but one of the ways I've always looked at the pool, and I'm not talking about a very high-level way of looking at the pool at all, I'm talking in a very mundane way, and that's that the fool is a person who just like trips around the world, I mean, you know, he doesn't have any, doesn't have any... Uh, well, that's the negative aspect of the fool. That's the fool reversed. That's what it means. I don't see it as a negative aspect. I see it as a... As an in, as a being that is just always in the morning of his glory, and he's always like you know in a position. Oh, you know he loves life, he loves the world, and so he comes down into the valley of manifestation because he loves to do it. It's like entertainment, and so he goes through this whole. Trip. Yeah, but you're mixing up. You know, you, you've got both aspects going now. <laughs> you know, the guy who's just fooling around. That's the negative aspect. But the fellow who is free, in his spirit, this is the higher aspect. I mean, there's no, in other words, uh, from an occult point of view, there would be absolutely nothing outwardly that would distinguish the fool and the higher aspects. Whereas the other guy, you, you'd say, well, you know, he's fooling around, he's horsing around, he's, you know, he's, he doesn't... I mean, I can see him being motivated by, or at least having the idea that he can go and become involved with people and like you know, be a good a source of beneficence or something. And I can see that. I can see that beauty in a fool. But the point I'm trying to make is, I, I can I see you know this him doing this trip, but not doing it from the standpoint of having a goal like you know, well I'm going to go build a school or something. I mean, I, it seems more loose than that. 
Yes. Uh, of course, I'm trying to take you know that and put them on the level of the world. Isn't he just starting there? As far as uh, yeah, yeah, in the full case, just starting. Yeah. He hasn't he hasn't made the descent yet. And uh, it's very interesting that, that the one side of the tree comes, the fool is going to one side of the tree, and the magician is going to the other. Now, the magician is the fellow that has the goal. In other words, he's on right. the Saturnine side of the tree, and if you're going to do anything, uh, you have to involve yourself with that side of the tree, because that's where everything is. See, the other side of the tree is the inspirer. Yeah, and, and the fool does that trip. He's not, the magician builds, he builds, What's he concretes that? things. The house, The faith. fool is like, you know, fresh air. He's like uh, inspiration. He, you know, he's like that, like yeah. breath. Well, he is the life breath. He's not like it. He is the life breath. In other words, uh, there's nothing wrong with, uh, you know, building a house or building a family or building an empire or anything else. The thing is, or even an institution, the thing is, that you have to keep the breath of life in it. That's the enthusiasm, and that comes from the other side. Yes? He said the hermit is the culmination of the self-awareness. Yeah. yeah. He is the self, and self-consciousness means, literally, it means consciousness of the self. So so the hermit, the, the fool, as regards self-awareness, is the hermit. They are the same thing. Yeah. Now, but they are a different aspect. One is the Ancient of Days aspect. In other words, God is the Ancient of Days, the ancient creator of all, and so on and so forth. But the fool represents the living aspect of God. In other words, the, the present aspect. It, the, <coughs> God is ageless, and he's always young. He's always ready to uh, have another uh, whack at things, and so on and so forth. This is because he's God. Uh, another guy got real pooped in the middle of all this shenanigans, you know. I'm sure I would if I, if, uh, like some people, you know, who uh, feel that, uh, you know, they've got the universe on their backs and they're going around this way. Well, uh, obviously this isn't true of uh, reality. And that's the part, uh, the buoyant part is, is the fool. This is the everyday working God that uh, uh, in the Book of Tokens, uh, Paul characterized it as the as the ox, the one who can who can really pack it, carry the whole thing. So, yes. I don't know how many people really understand that, but there was a little running strip there for a while where one character was in the sea of tapioca. You had to eat it all. <laughs> that's life. Perfect description. That's what happened. Even if you like tapioca, it can get, it can get a little rough after a while. I happen to have been raised on this stuff, but I didn't know what was happening to me. Did you have to eat it all? Yeah. Could you say then that one of the other cards is, is uh, the combination of the fool and some other trip? Like this is for the self-awareness trip, and then other trips aside from the self-awareness trip? Well, it's, yeah, I, I would say this is right on. You know. For all the cards? Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. <coughs> you, you understand that... Uh, in describing the fool, for instance, Paul states quite clearly that he's never been able, nobody's ever been able to make up uh, his mind as to whether it's a boy or a girl, uh, which is, uh, you know, uh, kind of this way. He's not born yet. What the hell? No, but uh, what he's talking about is the uh, 
the character of the spirit. It isn't uh, particularly a boy or a girl. That that feature comes in in the in the division that you see in the tree of life, where you get the polarity and all the interesting uh, um, phenomena that this polarity generates. You know. But the life spirit itself isn't is neither one or the other, uh, obviously. On the human level of the fool that you were talking about down there, just before I got into Carol, I think you might say I was manifesting that attitude because I went from Bath, England, made the Canterbury pilgrimage by way of Land's End, but it was fun. <laughs> so why not? It was. It was a slight detour. A friend of mine went on a pilgrimage in Mexico where it's just hundreds of people and some of them were like really old people, old women, 80 years old, walking, you know, like five days, six days, you know. Yeah. Hmm. Well, it's, uh, it's very impressive. I hadn't, uh, uh, I guess when I was in Mexico, the only pilgrimage I went on was to a bar to get a glass of beer, <laughs> dos Equis or something like that, but I was most impressed by uh, the uh, the uh, people who were going to uh, um, what's the name of the big church in Mexico? Yeah, Guadalupe. Yeah. yeah. I mean, obviously they were they were not just going in there on their knees. They were having a tremendous personal experience, you know, at the same time. And uh, well, it's 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 nothing new to any of you, but. It's amazing how a place like Guadalupe can absolutely be this way with all the vibes from the from the people who uh, go in there as as devotees. You know, they really light the place up. And that, <clears throat> I've been out in the sticks in Mexico in a little, relatively small church. Most of their churches are much bigger than they ought to be because you know the Spanish made the Indians build them, but uh, uh, that way. But <clears throat> This was way out in the sticks, you know, and you went into this church and uh, it just grabbed you, you know. There was there was so much devotion that had gone in this place over the years that the, it was just this way. And it was a nice, sunlit, simple church, but there was a lot of stuff in there, you know, a lot going on. And Guadalupe is, you know, you feel as though the whole thing is going to float off in the air, really. It doesn't see, you know, it's it's made out of something, but it seems so sort of alive that you wouldn't be surprised if it just floated away, really. Yeah. I think that, that uh, a lot of places are like that, or in a way all places are like that. But like this is the secret of the energy of Berkeley, the peculiar energy of Berkeley, is people coming and seeking it. And in coming and seeking it, they create it. And, yeah. and the kind of weird energy of Los Angeles and so on, sort of the spirit of place. Yeah. Which is very strong, which you describe very purely. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, uh, of course, we we mentioned all like somewhere along the line. Anyway, well, we had we were talking about the fool the other day. As as far as as far as you and I are concerned, the fool represents the uh, not indomitable spirit of man. Nothing like that at all. It's just that the spirit in man happens to be, uh, as they would say in England, bloody indestructible, uh, and. Uh, and so uh, that's the way it is. And if you 
well, it's it's been suggested many times that if you're kind of in the dumps, the thing that you should concentrate on in the tarot is the fool, for the simple reason that it represents this uh, peculiar aspect of yourself, which uh, is is um, is free. That key really does work. Of all the other keys, the best to do that, I think for me, really does. Yeah. Well, that's what it's uh, supposed to do. And as I said, uh, Paul had it on the highlights. His little book, he had it as, as the synthesis of the whole the whole business. You know. Uh, for one thing, uh, the delineation of man and his powers is very, very important in the Tarot and in the Kabbalah because this more or less gives you your birthright that otherwise you wouldn't have, you know. You become a member of the tribe, but this tribe happens to be the cosmic tribe as opposed to just the human tribe. Not that there's anything wrong with humans, but they have their limitations. But the cosmic tribe, they don't have any limitations. And you get initiated into the tribe uh, and the fool corresponds to that. Once you're in that tribe, you can't, you can never again uh, see things the same way as you saw them in the old days. You know, when you were sort of locked in. That's that's what the fool means. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. See, well, the fool has got everything on. He's got all the equipment. He's like the white knight in Alice, you know. He's got everything. That, he's got the can opener and the pots and pans and and the whole bit. Uh, he's never going to run out of anything. He's got it all right there. And that's the way we are, you see. And, uh, of course, all of our problems, uh, all the human problems, without exception, uh, have to do with the illusion of we'll say not having or not being something that uh, you'd like to be or this that and the other uh, all these these things are all illusory because uh, for instance in a country like this our philosophy is a very materialistic one and we're a mercantile establishment so uh, all the supplies that would sustain life in the United States go through commercial channels but where did the supplies come from in the first place? God knows the merchants didn't make them. And the farmers didn't make them. They came from somewhere else. Sure, the farmers had to work at it and so on and so forth. But uh, precisely what is supporting the people in the United States? It isn't the merchants. It isn't the system. But it's, it's the cosmic aspect of support that comes through the solar energy and the plants and so on and so forth. That's what's supporting the population. So, all right, we have our way of distributing it, the mercantile system. There could be other systems, but this is the one that we have. The West versus the East, I was thinking about that today, what you said about Berkeley. Um, Berkeley is like, isn't it just about the most Western place there is? Isn't it? Almost? The West Coast? Eureka is the farthest. Is, Eureka is the westernmost point of the United States, so it's pretty close. It is. So anyway... Um, yeah, that's right, Alaska now, but in the old days. Like, <laughs> what I was thinking was, better. the West is like, you know, 
the antithesis of the east, right? Yeah. The inward journey. The west is like outward manifestation. And then here we have this. It's been going on that way for a long time. And finally now, you know, beginning in the 60s, there was this real popularization of the, of the eastern thoughts, you know, becoming popular in the West. And it seems like it's almost like the yin-yang thing, you know, things turning into their opposites. But it started about a hundred years ago. Well, Japan's turning... No, I mean, the really, the oh, interest yeah, really started right. uh, heavily with the Theosophical Society. Um, they dragged it in here in a big way, you know, and publicized it. There had, uh, there had been quite a few swamis come over here who were pretty, pretty intelligent guys, but it was about a hundred years ago that America got a big dose of it from the Theosophists. Actually, Emerson was one of the first oh, ones sure. on a big high-level one. Oh, yeah. The other word. I believe that um, various people that are from the East and represent the East have said that the center of spiritual growth right now is in the West. Haven't they said that? The West Coast? I don't know. But anyway... That's interesting. The East is becoming more, you know, they're, they're becoming technologically more advanced than ever were before. They, they seem to be getting into, like, a getting together physical trip, you know, where they never have been able to do that before. And the West is finally, you know, just, just become a disaster because of their physical abilities. And so it has become, you know, come to the point where they recognize the absolute necessity of of the Eastern trip, and like, you know, everything's turning into the opposite. Well, of course, the, uh, as long as we're talking about ideals, and we are a lot of the time, uh, the balanced uh, situation is the one that's, uh, that we're, we're hoping right. for. In other words, there's absolutely nothing wrong with science at all. But, uh, in, in fact, it's, it's beautiful, but... Uh, uh, if you have, as we said before, and it's it's common the common feeling, the thing that you've just expressed. If you have intellect divorced from feeling, you have a monstrosity. And until you until you get the feeling aspect in, which comes in from the eastern side, uh, which of course symbolically is the empress in the tarot, by the way. Uh, until you get that this this heart side in the picture. Well, you don't have very much going at all. You, you've got uh, a sort of a, a science writer's uh, nightmare. It always intrigues me to call the ballot the door rather than the front. Well, but uh, more, you see, this has to do with uh, the creation uh, in the sense of things that are created. This is uh, the Empress corresponds to substance, and substance creates substance, and substance is the empress, and it's uh, it's out of herself that everything is created. Uh, and as far as the the other aspect is concerned, this is this is the creative energy in the empress. But she's when you sort of have to go through the empress to get to the other. That's right. You have to have feeling towards something. That's right. That's right. But she contains, uh, from our point of view, the Empress contains the, the whole works uh, because she contains the divine energy in herself. So that's, that explains how she can create everything. But if we look at her, if we look at it from our side of the picture, well, then she's the creator. In other words, she's the one who creates everything. It's only when we look inside that we see that 
that there is something else besides the the creator, the, the divine mother as the creator, that she has her inspiration, which is the divine energy. Well, I got that one night of meditation that. Uh, uh, where my head was in the place, but that, like if you were to meditate on the high priestess, that that was, could be kind of freaky if you didn't go through the Empress first, because the moon would really be far out, you know. I mean, you don't know who you might meet there, you know, one of Fostinata's giant masks, or, you know, brujos, magicians, all kinds of weird things. But if you go through the feeling, uh, you know, aspect, go through that door first, then it was okay to go to the moon. I don't know if that's a valid meditation, but that's what I get. Well, uh, as far as the high priestess is concerned, uh, this is the abstract aspect of mind. And uh, it's, it's, um, it's dark. That's why it's black on the tree of life. It's dark, so we're, we don't like the dark. In fact, uh, for a lot of very good reasons, we're afraid of the dark. And uh, this is, you know, this isn't such a bad idea either. What do you mean? Well, because uh, if, if we don't know enough, the dark can uh, hold a lot of terrors for us. I just understand your remark. This isn't such a bad idea. How did you mean? Well, I meant it just specifically that way. At a certain stage in your career, if you don't, if you don't have something, oh, okay. if you don't have something in your head that encompasses the darkness, uh, what comes out of the darkness can scare the hell out of you. True. Yeah, I get it. Man. So that's all that I meant. Yeah. I mean, yes. Sir. What, what do you want to know about that? Uh, what it represents. Well, it, it, in, in the highest representation is that it's, it's reality itself. Because it's self-fed. In other words, it doesn't need anything from the outside. It feeds on itself. All the changes that are going on, uh, uh, they devour each other as changes. One change devours another and so on and so forth. And the whole thing kept, keeps going anyway. You know, uh, this kind of a crazy business is symbolized by the, the serpent uh, feeding on its own tail, and it represents the it represents the real the real life situation. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, uh, you remember in school the nitrogen cycle and all this. And you cycle, you know, the clouds, and then it comes down, runs back in the ocean, and all this kind of thing, and, it's, and the energy comes from the sun, and so on and so forth. Well, that's, that's what I'm talking about. Everything goes around and around, goes through all these changes, and of course, in the chemical world, there's uh, a dissolution of uh, the material object, and it's dissolved, and then it comes up again as a, as a new, a new a new being of one kind or another, you know, it dissolves, goes back, I'm talking about the animal, in the animal kingdom, you know. So, uh, obviously, uh, the whole process is what's represented by the serpent swallowing its tail. And this is uh, also a part of the reproductive cycle which exists in the biological world. And, you know, it's, uh, 
it's very much tied to that. Is that what the representation is? Because it's about his weight? Well, it's, uh, I guess his weight would be, in general, it would be the solar aspect that would be there. The solar plexus and so on and so forth. So it would represent a certain level. And they say that uh, in terms of the, uh, in terms of the, we'll say the zodiac, that it encircles the zodiac. Because all the things in the zodiac are are part of this system of change, mm -hmm. where everything goes from one to the other, and you know moves on and so on and so forth, and cycles. And the, of course, the the serpent uh, swallowing tail is a cycle. You know, it's a absolute continuity. Yeah. But. As far as the devouring aspect is concerned, especially in terms of living beings, this is what this is what the living cycle. You know, we're here, then we're food for the worms, and then the worms get very fast and and come back as saints and so on and so forth, and sinners or whatever. Yes, Michael. What I was thinking also about um, the serpent on the magician—it's around the white robe. The white robe, you know, is his pure nature, his real nature inside, right? His higher self. And uh, the serpent is also a symbol for um, all that ever was or will be is always the same. And, and it's a symbol for time, and time doesn't really exist. And when you start at any one point, you always end up, the end is the beginning, and it's one, that idea. Yeah. And, and so it's the idea of the changeless. You know? yeah. Well, that's what I meant by reality. In other words, all the cyclings go on, but the, the, uh, the reality remains the same, you know. Yeah. Yeah. All these things going on. Yeah. On the fool, I remember Paul Case says that his belt around him is time. Uh, is time, and you you can't get out of the universe which he's wearing uh, without getting out of time. And here, the the yeah. belt is around this inner white robe of uh, wisdom, and you can't get out of that without getting out of time. No. It's well, different. they say the, the if, if you would want to. <laughs> the problem is that if you if you want to, we'll say, express yourself in the the world of creation, you you go through a boundary, and the snake represents the boundary. You pass through this boundary, and on the other side is the red robe. And in other words, you go into the land of desire before you can even get into the world of creation. Is the snake the same as the fool's robe then? Outer robe. No. The fool's it's, it's, outer. Every, it's everything. Well, no, I, I was talking about this, that you go, that it represents a limit as far as what's inside of the snake and what's outside. And you'll notice that what's outside is the desire nature. And when you go from, so obviously you go from one level into, into the, what's represented by desires and what the desire nature is involved with is the world of creation. That's that's tied directly to that. That's how we create everything. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. Sure. By design. Right? That's right. Sure. Yeah. And this is a limit between. Yeah, I mean, uh, inside there isn't any desiring because uh, mm -hmm. it's this is where everything is fulfilled in itself. It doesn't it doesn't require anything. Mm -hmm. In other words, it's hard to believe of a situation that uh, we'll say exists for eternity in which there is a state of fulfillment 
but uh, it, it represents, you might say, uh, uh, how shall I put it? It's, it's not a state of mind exactly, but it's a kind of consciousness that's always fulfilled. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't have to go into the whole mechanics of desiring something as an object and, and getting it and then desiring something else as an object. It, it has already uh, this sense of fulfillment. The reason that it has this is because it is self-sufficient. Mm -hmm. And this is the way the spirit is in man, as opposed to, we'll say, man, the poor struggling beast. The spirit in man uh, doesn't need anything. It already has the most important things, which in the Hindu scheme, they call knowledge, existence, and bliss. This is characteristic of the spirit. Well, if it has knowledge, existence, and bliss, what the hell more do you want? <laughs> I mean, this is what it's all about, isn't it? See? So, uh, the, the rest of it, uh, the, uh, the ordinary fun and games, is played in another, in another theater, and that's outside of that boundary there. So, I've got the existence, and I'm, I have the bliss that I'm aware of from time to time, and what I'm working on is the knowledge. Well, whatever. Okay. You, you can take it from there. Well, it, it's it's more the conquest is more understanding the nature of the desire. Your everybody should try and understand the nature of his desire, uh, so that. Uh, uh, it, it has to do with motivation, and it goes as far as not only this philosophy, but in the East as well. It's, it's part and parcel of the root of the universe, because it's a universal characteristic. It isn't personal, in other words. You're not talking about desiring Monday, you know, desiring well, it's, it's the same thing. It is the same thing. It's, it's exactly the same. It's water is water, and it's water. I mean, speaking symbolically, water is water anywhere, and that's the way it is. here and what happens is that it comes down like this and goes inside of this and so this conscious energy supports the entire uh, creation from within but as far as you and I are concerned the mind is is the object because it creates the form of the object in other words it's mind formed and then the thing that gives it uh, uh, the energy value, of course, comes from the other side. And in the Kabbalistic view, it contains the element of consciously directed energy. So that uh, theologically, it would be, we'll say, divine. But it's not necessary to think of it in those terms. 
I mean, if you find it's helpful, it makes you feel any better, it wouldn't hurt you either, but uh, you don't have to think of it this way. As long as you think of it as being supportive, that's the most important thing to remember. And to, when you think of consciousness, you have to remember that you're talking about the universal consciousness rather than, we'll say, a limited personal consciousness. So, as Mort here could tell you, the, uh, the spin, which is the energy value uh, in the forms, is, uh, I mean, the, the, the energy that's in the spin is one thing, but the actual um, delineation of any particular form is the area that the high priestess is, is literally the, the lord of all this. Yes. Is being more fundamental than consciousness then? Well, being it describes the whole bit. In other words, whether I'm conscious or not, I go on existing. Oh, and yes. Existence and, is oh, the yes. most fundamental. Yeah. I am the thing that it is. Yeah. In other words, uh, the being part, as far as the Kabbalah is concerned, is um, something that we can only think of in terms of the way that it expresses itself. Because from our point of view, it's unconscious. But it isn't unconscious from the capitalist point of view. We're yeah. the ones who are unconscious. And it is uh, conscious. In other words, the life power, the n four, is very much so in control I. of everything that's going on. And we, as, as lesser lights, uh, we're trying to find out the rules of the game. Yes? You know how to know who? Sensuyama. No. What do you mean, uh, a, a, a Sanskrit word, is it? Sounds like it. Sounds like an word. It's S-E-N-S-A-Y-A-M-A. Well, you could look it up. I, I did, I couldn't find it. Sounds it sounds to me like they made it up out of a couple of other words. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, it might be. If, I don't know anything about how Sanskrit is constructed, but, of course, Yama in, in Sanskrit is the god of death. So if anybody knows what the sense of part is, well, uh, then you could... Uh, well, the context that the word was used in was this. We all have sense of Yama, don't we? You went, sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I'm sure I'll come across it in some of my, in some of my books, and when I do, I'll, I'll tell you about it. I'll look for it, in other words, and when I come across it, I'll, yeah. It's a sense of yama. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, yama is, uh, you know, is the god of death, and very important. Uh, it corresponds in the tarot, of course, corresponds to key 13. And this is the only way that we can, the only way that we can transform ourselves is through the agency of yama. So it's, you know, this is the transforming part. We can't go from one state to another. We can't advance one inch without uh, this particular power coming to the rescue. Because what happens is that uh, as one thing is created in us, another thing dies. And this makes it possible for us to become liberated. And we move into the, we move into the new part of ourselves. We're continually doing this, and we're dropping the old selves, just drop off and, you know, like old skin. Devouring, 
her children? Pardon me? Is that the same thing as Saturn borrowing her children? Well, it's a little bit different. <laughs> Close. It's a little bit You're getting warmer. As a matter of fact, uh, Mike, as a matter of fact, it, it represents more this snake that we were talking about in the other thing, where we are the snake. We are the snake ourselves, you see. And we shed our skin, you know, and all that sort of thing, which is another thing that's mentioned in connection with the snake that... Uh, that made it uh, very important symbolically was the fact that it did shed its skin and got into the skin. And that's, you know, that's part of the deal. Of course, uh, <coughs> being the essence of substance, the high priestess represents memory uh, and the, the very essence of the idea of memory because it, of course, uh, substance records everything, you know especially when you think in terms of mind. That's why, according to the occult view, this is the reason that we remember, is because we share in the universal principle of memory. You see, uh, dogmatically, in the dogmatic Kabbalah, there, uh, there is no such thing about us as a personal quality. Every quality is universal and all of our faculties are universal. This is a helpful thought because it explains a whole lot of things about ourselves. And this is true also of our desire nature. You know, you asked about that. Well, that, that also is involved with uh, what makes the universe go around. In other words, that's, that's the driving force of the universe. And it's driving in the direction of fulfillment. In other words, it may have the craziest idea in the world. It, uh, what it wants to do, uh, there's nothing you and I can do about it, but it's just as mad for its objective as you and I are mad for our objectives. And uh, this is where we get our power. It's just derived from the great big uh, push that's going on all the time. And as they say, leading God knows where, and that's about all you can say about it, you see. But in our own case, we, we do have the possibility of some control, so that in our own small way, we can be like God too, and, and use these energies to get to a certain place, condition, or what have you, you see, that, that pleases us, which is, I'm sure, is uh, what God or the universe is doing itself, because why not? You know, who's going to stop it? The boss does what he wants, so, uh, you know, he doesn't even say, uh, you know, he doesn't even say, do what I say, and not as I do. He doesn't even bother with that, but he says, here, you've got all this stuff, the same as I've got it now. All you have to do is get it organized uh, somehow or other. Uh, just remember where it came from. That would be very nice if you'd remember, you know, Papa and Mama, but you're on your own. Is that what Crowley meant by following your, your true will? Well, uh, the, your true will is is uh, the same as the will. In other words, everything was given to you. You didn't. Uh, you're not that smart, and I'm not that smart to dream up all the things that we would like to have. So, uh, the part that's full of smarts says, "I'm going to give you all this stuff. Here it is. It's yours." And there's no, there's no, uh, no strings attached or anything like that. You can do with uh, 
with this gift you can do. It's just like I gave you a, a free gift of uh, a million dollars and said, baby, it's yours. I never want to see you again. Just have a, a good time with it. Do anything you want with it. Give it away. Throw it in the ocean. Do anything you please. It's yours. It's that kind of a gift. But you have the responsibility for it. <laughs> You're stuck with it, in other words. It's if you had the million bucks, you'd find that it was a responsibility. And you might uh, knock your head off trying to figure out what you were going to do with it. It might make you happy, and it might make you miserable. I don't know, but uh, anything could happen, you see. And the same thing with the responsibility for ourselves. You know, if uh, it can make us deliriously happy, or it can make us quite sad, depending on where we're at. Well, anyway, Our Lady here uh, is the cup, and uh, she contains everything in the sense that uh, she's the substantial aspect. So, uh, in the in the coming week, uh, please. Uh, especially play around with the idea of memory and try to think of it, just for starters anyway, as a universal principle rather than something that we just, you know, have as individuals. And it kind of opens a few, a few doors, you know, so that you can sort of let yourself go a little bit. And of course, they tell us that when we get real full of smarts, why we'll be able to drift off into the cosmic memory and see all sorts of fascinating things. Who knows? Well, thanks very much for joining me. As always, I enjoy your company so much. And hope to see you.